0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. This story has been in the
1: headlines the last couple of days. It is wild. It's about orcas off the coast of Spain that have been involved in multiple incidents. Essentially, they have attacked and sunk some boats. And people are going, wait a minute, what is happening here. What is the motive? Do they know what they're doing? Like, are they doing this on purpose? We wanted to talk about the research and what's happening. So Dr. Luke Rindell joins us now, reader in biology at the University of St. Andrews. Dr. Rindell, thank you for being here.
2: Oh, thank you very much for having me. I I, I must note it's uh, an honour to speak to a BC audience because we know how important the whales are. Uh, out there and you have so many great scientists learning about these animals in your region
1: that's so true you make an excellent point that's actually why we were so interested in this story because we do have such a close association with these orcas out here so do we know what's happening here what happened
2: um well in, in the facts are that in in may 2020 um a group of killer whales started uh, in, initiating interactions with boats largely small sailing vessels in the coastal waters off uh, spain and portugal on the west of the Iberian Peninsula there. And these attacks quickly became physical altercations that have uh, kind of ramped up in their intensity since then and, and in the last few weeks have resulted in um, uh, sufficient damage being done to at least one boat to to sink it. Um, any answer about why they're doing it is has to be speculative by its very nature. We are so... Far away from understanding what the the motivations are, um, so it could range from anything from you know um, one animal in the group having had a bad encounter with a boat like this before, and kind of spreading a some kind of revenge taking <laughs> um, ethos people like amongst the social group. Yeah, people. Yeah, like that people theory. like that theory. Um, it, it's also true that the that uh, you know you um, we know from from uh, whales from the from BC waters that they will sometimes engage in these kind of random fads like carrying dead salmon on their heads um, which happened to a group of southern residents for, for, for a couple of years and then it went away again and we see examples like this in other uh, dolphin species like bottlenose dolphins so the other possibility is that it's a kind of fad it's just something that they got into doing and uh, we don't know how long they'll keep doing it obviously it has pretty bad consequences for the people involved unlike carrying dead salmon which is unfortunate for the salmon but doesn't really bother people
1: Right. But th- there's lessons for us to learn here as well, right? Because if that is what they are doing, uh, is this a learned behavior? Did they, You said they had a bad interaction, perhaps?
2: Um, that, that's one of the theories out there. Yeah. Pretty convinced that it's a learned behavior, and it's actually unique to this particular group of animals. We know which individuals do it, um, and, and not all of them do in that group. So um, the, the best idea we have is that it originated with a single animal for some reason interacting in this way and that other animals have then in their in their social group have then learned that behavior from them and we see this a lot in in wild populations of orcas.
1: Hmm, interesting do other <laughs> types of whales do this?
2: Um, well you'll be familiar with the story of Moby Dick and the grain of truth behind that was the sinking of the whale ship Essex uh, and of course there are multiple accounts from that era of sperm whales getting pretty aggressive with the boats that were directly attacking them obviously these sailboats weren't directly attacking the orcas so that, so it's not an immediate self-defense uh issue as it was with the sperm whale. so again we're left with this we're left kind of scratching our heads really it's it's a very uh uh difficult behavior to understand the motivations of because it doesn't appear to give any immediate benefit to them it's not like they're eating the boats or or somehow um you know, becoming more successful at raising offspring because they're attacking boats as far as we can see. So it, it really is a, is a puzzle.
1: But yeah, you're right. In terms of like adaptive behavior, they haven't adapted to those other things, but somehow they've adapted mm-hmm. to this. So is this one particular pod that is doing this or has it spread beyond that?
2: Um, as, as far as we know, there's essentially um, uh, two groups which, which are likely to be related um, that, are, that have engaged in this um, uh, behavior uh so um at least uh it's done by seven specific individuals in two social groups but we don't really know how much of a population uh, there is for it to spread into because we don't understand this population quite as well as we do for example the, the, right. the, the southern residents of bc
1: let me ask you this and so if obviously we want to know why they're doing this and you want to study that or somebody wants to study that how do you do that when clearly this prod does not like people to get too close <laughs>
2: yes, so so there are limits in what we can do, um and i'm I, I sh- you know I should note that I'm not personally involved in in doing this, but I've spoken to a number of the people um uh, who are. So there was a paper published last year which sort of summarized about fifty such interactions that had happened um in uh, the, the period since May 2020, um, and that's kind of just gathering information from people who've had uh, interactions with uh, orcas in these waters and trying to develop patterns from that so we already know for example from that work that um the 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 target boats are a particular kind of sailboat with a particular kind of rudder called a sail called a spade rudder so about 35 of the 45 interactions have involved boats like that and the reason they get sunk is that um uh, these spade rudders are basically like a lollipop on a stick and, and uh, the stick goes up through the hull. So if you break off the the lollipop and the stick comes out, there's a lot of water coming into your boat. So they're particularly vulnerable. Wow. I've read an interesting idea that maybe the, the particular form of those rudders looks like the fins of large whales that they might uh, otherwise hunt. And so maybe they've started interacting with them in that way to see whether there's the prospect of of trying to develop a food source. Wow. And I think this is probably indicative of how they go about their lives in general, which is to be very curious about potential new food sources and and interact with them and see if uh, they can learn anything about about that. So at the moment they're not getting reinforced, right, all they're getting is a bit of rudder to chew on. Um there's no food involved or anything like that. So maybe the behavior will die out. I think that's probably the most hopeful Uh, prognosis.
1: Well, maybe, but otherwise we'll be talking to you about it again, I think. So Dr. (laughs) Rindell, thank you for your time on that this morning.
2: You're most welcome.
1: That's Dr. Luke Rendell, reader in biology at the University of St. Andrews, who is one of the researchers that studies this orca pod that is off of the Iberian coast, off the coast of Spain there. And you've probably seen the headline on this story in the last couple of days. It is some killer whales who've been involved in multiple incidents where they have attacked boats. One of them has actually sunk as well. It's the third time that's happened since May of 2020. And they're wondering what is going on with this particular pod of whales. It is fascinating behavior
3: this is mornings with simi
1: like i was uh, you know definitely in the majority with the millions and millions of people yesterday i was so sad by the news that tina turner had passed away at the age of 83 and you know what scott shatz our contributor and i were of the same mind on this one like it was devastating
0: Super sad uh, that Tina Turner passed away. I go through this anytime we lose one of these amazing artists that has just been there my whole life.
1: But I will say that not all, look, when that happens, and I've come to the conclusion now, I'm at that age, right? Where the people that I grew up with are going to start passing away. Not all of them affect me like that. Sure. Tina Turner did. And, you know, just on the weekend, just on Sunday, as a matter of fact, I had afternoon to myself, which was delightful, sitting on the couch and Watched like flipping channels because I love a good Sunday afternoon movie. And Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome was just starting on TV. And I thought, you know what? I have not watched this movie in decades. Sure. I, I remember seeing it in the movie theater when I was a kid and really loving it because the soundtrack was so fantastic. Right. And I thought, I'm going to watch this movie. And it was so great. And the whole time I was like, my God, Tina Turner so good in this movie. And... And then she passes away and I thought, Oh, I can't, I just got to enjoy that movie again. Yeah.
0: You know what I think? I think like, and this is what happened with Tina Turner and this does happen with lots, not lots, but it's like they, they sort of come to this phase in their life where they're not putting out new content anymore, new music and stuff. And so you focus on other bands and stuff and it's like, I don't like Tina Turner any less, but I've, I've listened to her less and I'm focusing on other things. And then unfortunately someone passes away, like in this case, and I'm, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I forgot all of this amazing work that she, she, she did. Yes. You know, like I, I put on a Cena Turner playlist yesterday and I'm like, oh, and this song. Oh, and this song. Yeah. And then you come and, in and I'm like, oh, yeah, she was in Mad Max. Like,
1: and yeah. And when you look at, you know, especially in the 80s, which was like my formative years, that she is being saluted and missed by people like Mick Jagger, Elton John. Eric Clapton, like the greatest of the oh, great yeah. rock musicians. John Fogarty said that her version of Proud Mary is like his favorite. It's he the was version. So honored. Yeah, he was so honored that Tina Turner chose that song to play. And that made her originally. And so we're, in terms of her acting career, she didn't get as many offers as she wanted to, to do more acting. And she chose apparently Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, uh, even though Steven Spielberg wanted her for the color purple oh my gosh and she said nope i don't need to act that i have lived that so i'm gonna go do this other movie because it sounds like the female role is more powerful
0: and i thought that was like in the 1980s good on you tina turner did you know that she was the first black artist and the first black female artist to be on the cover of rolling stone no yeah i just read that this morning
1: amazing and when you look at her songs, like how great I know Brian Adams is quite torn up too, cause he had a great duet with her, but just like hit after hit after hit and Dewey and, and the fact that she, what she came from, what she survived, yes. what she got past. I saw her in concert and I looked this up to get the date right last night because I remembered that it was 1984, but it was June 29th, 1984 Pacific Coliseum. She opened for Lionel Richie. So I was wow. there as a 13 year old to see Lionel Richie. Great concert there with my cousins. And then this other artist came out to open for him, and we were like, Who is this?
0: Woman? Oh, wow.
1: And then after about two or three songs, we were like,
0: who is this woman? Because she was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And man, it's such a, it's so sad whenever this happens. That's why I'm like, you got to go see the shows, you know, when you have the opportunity to, and of course everyone is sharing videos and that type of thing all the way up to the end, even, you know, like in her sixties, she was just absolutely given her on stage. It's just, yeah. One of the greats, the queen of rock and roll.
1: The Tina, the musical actually is playing in London, England right now. Oh, that would be so great. And they great. had to make the announcement yesterday, just before the performance Hap- like that, this is what had happened, and obviously, th- it was so sad. But there are ways to like honor her, listen to by Private Dancer.
0: Yeah, there you go. Right? Such a great album! Such a great album. What's your favorite Tina Turner song? Uh, the best. Yeah. I I mean, when you're playing, we don't need another hero there. I mean, that's an amazing song. But the best has just always, it it gets me so stoked. It's such a great song.
1: Yeah. It's kind of like
0: a rock anthem, isn't it? Yes. Like so many of her songs are.
1: I think you definitely put the best up there. That's true. But she had so many great ones. I would say to everybody, do yourself a favor and just do that Tina Turner playlist today and enjoy it. Um, And I know lots of people have great memories of her, don't they? Yeah, you bet. All right. Well, Scott has them too. And if you've got something you want to share, like what is the greatest Tina Turner song?
3: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: I can't tell you how many times I have heard someone say, oh, the news is just so depressing these days from all over the world. And I have a lot of sympathy for that because it does seem like that a lot of the time, right? But there are important stories from around the world that can give us an idea of what is happening right here at home too. For instance, the rise of what we call populism, where the rules of what used to be acceptable in public and what isn't have now kind of been upended right? Candidates can seemingly say things and do things that years ago would have meant an end to their political career, but now gets them elected and they seem to thrive on it. Amanda Taub is an international affairs reporter at the New York Times and has been writing about this. She joins us now. Amanda, thank you for being here.
4: Thank you so much for having me. Is this a trend that you see happening all over the world? Absolutely. So I have been focusing a lot of my reporting on the rise of particularly right-wing populism but sometimes the left-wing version as well around the world for at least seven years now um and It's been very interesting because, of course, every country's flavor of populism varies a little bit depending on the particular circumstances of their politics, their culture, their history, etc. But there are some real similarities in the themes that um, come up. and, And one of them is exactly what you said, this idea that the old rules no longer apply and that these politicians can kind of get away with saying and doing things that would have ended careers just a few years earlier.
1: So how do you define populism? What is the thread that connects these things together?
4: So I think the simplest way to describe it is that populism is a type of politics that claims to be representing the real people against the illegitimate elite. And, you know, who the people are and who the elite are can vary, Um, But that tends to be the message. And so in right-wing populism, there's often a real kind of racial or xenophobic tint to it, where they claim that the country is being invaded or taken over by some sort of outsider, and that the mainstream politicians are failing to stop this. So this is something you see in Europe, where um, populists tend to rail against immigrants. um, And it came up in fairly similar ways in some of the things that you heard from Donald Trump, particularly when he was first running in 2016. And so much of his campaign was focused on illegal immigrants.
1: Right? What is the what is the role of political parties in all of this?
4: So political parties, in most democracies for, you know, the kind of most of the modern era kind of particularly post-World War II, but also before it, political parties were really a kind of gatekeeper institution. So because parties controlled who had the resources to run a campaign, who had the resources to get their message out in media, who had the resources to run advertising, who could get access to things like debates that would be covered for free by the media, etc. Political parties really got to decide you know, as a first cut, who could even have a chance of getting elected. Obviously, politicians still had to please voters, but Mm -hmm. it meant that there was this extra layer of control. Um, and there were other kind of similar gatekeepers. So mainstream media organizations such as, you know, prominent radio hosts or newspapers definitely (laughs) played a role. Um, back in the day, they might have
5: played a role. Exactly.
4: (laughs) Exactly. As I think we both know things have really changed. Um, And so that was true for, you know, most of what people think of as the sort of modern democratic era. Right.
1: But But also those, yeah, I was going to say those political parties back in the day had more of a gatekeeping role, right? Because it's not like everybody could decide who the candidate is, whereas now it feels like there's much more participation in those political parties.
4: Yeah, so things have really changed, and they've really changed for a few reasons. Um, One is actually that because it has become so much easier for people to do the things that parties used to do. So you no longer need a political party to help you get your message out to mainstream media. You no longer even need mainstream media. Um, You know, you can turn to social media, you can turn to direct email, you can, um, you know, do a lot of things like that, that can gain attention without having to go through one of these gatekeepers, that that has really weakened political parties. Um, And in some countries, that weakening has been really significant. Um, So in uh, the United States, for instance, there were changes to campaign finance rules that also made it much easier for donors to go straight to candidates. Um, with large amounts of money rather than having to go through political parties. Um, and that has had this this huge effect, um, particularly because, you know, there were a few different types of weakening that happened all at the same time. You know, we talked a second ago about the media, um, the proliferation of social media and new media and sort of the catastrophic collapse of the ad- advertising market for media has really weakened those institutions as well. So these groups that used to be these all-powerful gatekeepers and really had the power to decide if somebody's career was over, if they said something that was outside the bounds of what was considered acceptable political discourse. They just no longer have that kind of power.
1: Right. And you're seeing this happen in countries all over the world. Is there a thread that,
4: that kind of runs through these? Um, so I think that there are probably a few threads. So one is that um, the the you know this type of kind of populism particularly on the right that demonizes outsiders um it tends to hit very similar tropes all over the world um and i think that is in part because We're in an ever more connected world, and a lot of these organizations actually talk to each other. So, you know, I was in Brazil a few years ago reporting on um, how social media was helping supporters of Bolsonaro in Brazil, Mm -hmm. Um, and all of these young Brazilians were talking to me about um, things that Steve Bannon had said and things that they had seen on YouTube about on um, PragerU channels and things like that. Um, So it really has become globalized. Um, I think another common thread that tends to give this kind of thing a heightened effect is the type of political system. So in something like a parliamentary system, um, I think this hasn't been as significant in part because when you have multiple parties, it's more difficult for sort of one charismatic politician to really take over a major party. Um, they tend to you know parties tend to be in coalitions it's harder to to sort of gain as much um, as much sway over them as you can in a two-party system so that's meant that they can have um, you know more impact in places that have two-party or presidential systems Um, and the other thing that I think has been a real theme has been that This also has the most effect in countries that have had some sort of political crisis, which, you know, for separate reasons has maybe undermined one of the major political parties or both of the major political parties. So to go back to the Brazilian example, they had a huge corruption scandal before Bolsonaro was elected that I think really made people much more open to this populist message that the the elite were corrupt and flawed because there was so much evidence of corruption within mainstream politics.
1: Wow. Have you seen anything, though, that can help guard against situations like this? Like, does anything work? Or is this just part of, you know, the the flow of history, how things work?
4: I think that there are a lot of things that can blunt the impact of this. It's just that the difficult is the difficult part is that they're very difficult to construct fast. So, you know, I mentioned that there seem to be protective values that come from being a multi party parliamentary democracy. Um, because you know, when you can have a multi party system, that makes it difficult for any one party or one leader to gain too much outsized influence, and also in a parliamentary system, parties have an additional form of power, which is that they tend to have more direct control over their list of candidates than in a system where candidates can, you know, run on their own ticket or in an open primary where they can, um, you know, sort of go directly to the people. Um, so those things, I think, can really matter. It's just that it's very difficult to construct them quickly. It's very difficult to make wholesale changes to the structure of a political system that's already been in place for a long time. Um, and I think when it comes to other kinds of, other kinds of factors that can sort of um, help a country, I guess, keep the center holding a mm-hmm. little bit, um, those probably depend much more on the specifics of individual countries. So, you know, particular elites might be able to, you know, strike particular types of bargains with each other, um, or there might be particularly strong civil society groups, such as trade unions um, or religious organizations that could have an effect. Um, But the circumstances of that can really vary. Wow. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. It was so interesting. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk.
1: This is Mornings with Simi. There is still so much that we don't know about treating and dealing with concussions. Even getting a fast and accurate diagnosis can be so challenging. So imagine what a difference it could make if we could identify and diagnose a concussion quickly. And As it turns out, we are getting there. Thanks in part to research that's being done right here in BC. Dr. Noah Silverberg is a professor of neuropsychology at the University of British Columbia and joins us now. Thank you so much for being here.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: Why are concussions so challenging to diagnose?
3: Well, I think the biggest reason is that they are variable from one person to the next. So there are not, it doesn't show up exactly the same way. Uh, the, another reason is that the signs and symptoms can be relatively subtle and short lived. And by the time somebody actually gets in front of a doctor for an evaluation, uh, most of their uh, initial problems may have already resolved, they may still feel unwell, but there's not a lot the doctor can 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 see. Uh, And those things together, I think, make consistent diagnosis challenging.
4: Okay,
1: so how are we working towards changing that?
3: Well, you know, this this initiative um, that we've just reported on is an attempt to kind of bring the field together to improve the quality and consistency of, of clinical care and, and research for mild traumatic brain injury. So, there's been a number of different uh, definitions kind of floating out there and being used by different doctors and, and research groups. And, uh, it, you know, it, it got to a point where a patient could go to one doctor uh, or another and get, a, you know, a different diagnosis. And then, and, and same, it made it difficult to synthesize information across research studies when everyone defines concussion differently and enrolls different kinds of patients. So here, we tried to bring together uh, the best research evidence over the past uh, few decades. Uh, And there are some questions that still remain answered, hasn't really been looked at with science. And so... To address those gaps, we brought together a group of experts from around the world uh, to work through a consensus process and kind of get on the same page about what are the signs and symptoms and diagnostic tests that we should be using and what pattern of findings should uh, get a diagnosis of mild traumatic brain injury versus, you know, a bump on the head that's not a brain injury versus a more severe brain injury.
1: So do the symptoms like manifest differently differently? Depending on the person, like, do some people have some symptoms and other people wouldn't have those symptoms? They'd have something else?
3: Yeah, and we don't entirely know why that is. Um, So on the one hand, you know, we can have, uh, you know, an adolescent or older adult injured uh, anything from a fall to a car accident to assault. Um, And there's overlap both across and within those kinds of people and injuries, and and, uh, we don't fully understand why.
1: Okay, so then how do we improve this? You talked about research that's being done. Uh, Is it like a joint effort, everybody kind of combining what Mm -hmm. they know at this point?
3: Yeah, that's exactly what we're trying to do now, just to kind of get the field uh, on the same page and be consistent in how we're identifying this injury.
1: So what are the next steps that need to happen?
3: Well, the biggest next steps uh, are going to be uh, uptake. So, making sure that um, physicians and other healthcare providers uh, across healthcare settings, and in family doctors' offices and emergency departments, in sports medicine clinics, etc., are all using uh, this same definition and ensuring uh, uh, fairness and equity in, in who gets uh, access to care and treatment.
1: What are some of the surprising symptoms, do you think, like to let doctors know, hey, if you see this, this might actually be a concussion or a mild traumatic brain injury?
3: Well, that's probably the biggest challenge is that there are actually no symptoms that are entirely unique or specific to concussion. So we more so, I think, have the opposite problem where people show up with a pattern of symptoms like headaches or dizziness or difficulty concentrating that could be due to any number of things. And so the challenge is trying to figure out in which patients are these actually symptoms of brain injury.
1: Dr. Silverberg, do you think we're close? We're close to getting potentially Some kind of cohesion on this?
3: Well, I think this recent effort was a a big step in that direction. Um, So it pulls together uh, clinician scientists from a variety of backgrounds, uh, emergency medicine, neurology, neurosurgery, neuropsychology, et cetera, from across North America and Europe and Australia. Uh, And through this process of getting their feedback and refining diagnostic criteria, sending it back to them for another round of voting, et cetera, uh, we finally got to a place of of consensus. And so uh, I think this provides a way forward.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much for telling us about it today.
3: Thanks for the attention.
1: This is Mornings with Simi. We're going to talk about the housing market now with our contributor, Scott Schantz, who's been digging into the severity of our housing crisis. It's actually a bit depressing, Scott, when you start digging into it.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, we want to be realistic about, about how things look with the housing in our, in our city and in our country. But you're absolutely right. And I think kind of the reason that it feels that way is because, I, at least I know for me and the people that I talk to, that owning a home is kind of like that's like the, or has been the signal that you've made it. You know, that's what we're all striving for. And once you get there, that it's finally like, okay, now I can breathe. I can relax. I've done the thing that I've been working for. I've been studying for all of that. It's all, it was for, at least for me, all about owning a home. Uh, but it kind of feels like that's getting a little bit out of reach, right? So a little I, bit, <laughs> a li- for, uh, I guess, how about unreachable for I, so many people? Yeah. And I guess that depends on your economic situation and stuff, but I tend to be an optimist, and I want to think that there is a chance that maybe things could turn around, or, you know, we hear terms like bubble, and how long is this going to last, all that type of stuff. So I spoke with uh, Thomas Davidoff. He's from the UBC Souter School of Business Center for Urban Economics and Real Estate, to try to just get a little bit more information on this. And uh, I think you are hitting the nail on the head when you mentioned depressing, but there's, <laughs> he said some pretty shocking things uh wow, okay. Yeah, okay. Listen to what he said when I asked him what the future of home ownership uh, could look like here in B.C.
6: When I was getting out of college, I certainly worried in my career whether I'd make enough money. But I don't think I worried that I would make enough money but not be able to afford a decent home. I just don't think that was a thing. I asked my students now who are sort of business students. Statistically, most of them are going to have great careers. But I ask them, how many of you are worried that even if you have a good career, you won't be able to afford the home you want? And it's like 100 percent of the hands go up. I mean, I know some of them are going to eventually inherit an awesome house from their parents. But in the meantime, it's going to be tough. And I worry about the stability. Right. Canada is doing a great thing, in my opinion, and letting in many immigrants. I'm an immigrant. So, you know, I'm certainly pro-immigration. But I do think that immigration is an important reason that prices are rising. And so... It's very important that government allow enough homes to get built to keep pace with demand. It, w- housing is right up there, right? Food, clothing, and shelter are the three most important things. You don't really need clothing. Food and housing, right? So people are going to get pretty pretty annoyed if, if, if affordability is bad, and rightly so.
0: You used an interesting word there. The government has to allow houses yeah. to be built. So uh, as a person, uh, a layman, I sort of see this as like, oh, it's... It's just an issue that there's not enough workers to build these houses. But is, is it actually an issue of the government not allowing or maybe, maybe dragging their heels on allowing these places to be built?
6: So 70 percent of the land in Canada requires that homes be suburban style, detached. They're working on it in Vancouver. Now you can have a laneway house and a basement suite. But the overwhelming majority of land that allows housing at all, at this point, are for rich people only. So you're taking 70% of the land and requiring homes of a nature that maybe 5% of the population can afford. It's incredibly stupid and regressive and inefficient. And it makes the economy less dynamic. And it's just the dumb, inefficient thing to do. So... Look, I mean, it's totally understandable that people would rather have trees next door to them than people. I Personally, that's my preference. But it's just not sustainable, uh, given how many people want to live here in our urban centers.
0: When we talk about how expensive can housing get, look at cities like London and New York, where $4,000 a month rent for a one-bedroom is not uncommon. So if it's gone that high there, and those are desirable places to live, it can certainly go that high here and it sort of becomes the point that like the only path to home ownership is inheritance. Do you see that as as a possibility for our future?
6: Well, with low interest rates, you know, the ability to buy something as valuable as a home in Vancouver, I think we have a global economy and I mean think about the number of incredibly talented people who live in really situations that are not great, you know, climate difficulties, political Uh, unrest, uncertainty, instability. How many people live in countries like that? I mean, like, a lot. And a lot of them are really talented people. The idea that they could have a decent home in a place like Vancouver or Toronto, it's an incredible luxury. And the fact that it was like you could, like, have a decent, okay, education and, you know, not great job and and, and be able to afford a home here was a miracle. And, you know, it was a really great little period for people lucky enough uh, to, to live here. I think that run of luck is not going to be forever. And I think the future uh, of affordability is not terrific. And so government choices are, you know, we can make things uh, worse and worse and worse, or we can make things worse, but not that much worse. I don't think like people can get a detached house with a yard, uh, despite being in the middle of the income distribution, that that's not on the table.
0: Uh, Professor Davidoff from the UBC Sauder School of Business. I thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. Thank you
6: Scott. Anytime,
0: of course. I mean, some of the stuff in there. I appreciated that conversation. That's Thomas Davidoff from the UBC Sauder School of Business and Center for Economics and Real Estate, Urban Economics and Real Estate. He said living in Vancouver and Toronto it, it's an extreme extreme luxury.
1: Yeah, he tells it like it is, right? He he really does. And The thing is, and I was telling Scott this earlier, is for the last couple of years, I've thought about downsizing or we've thought about downsizing and we can't because there is nowhere for us to downsize to. Right. Right. Even to move sideways would cost us as much money or more. So there's nothing for me to downsize into where I could get a little savings, you know, move on from my single family house. There's just a lack of availability of options out there.
0: Yeah, and the part where he talked about uh, the government allowing more houses to be built. Because I had just sort of viewed it as like, oh, we just need more houses to be built. Like, hire the people to build it. There just must not be enough people. But it's so complicated when you get into the zonings and the restrictions and stuff. So some really insightful information from him there. But if you're holding your breath for a bubble burst, it doesn't not really sound like it.
1: Well, even if, and prices have come down a little bit. And I think at any other market at any other given time, if you said prices were down 10, 15%, it would be shocking. Right. And in here, it's like nothing. Totally. <laughs> right? Supply and demand. I think a lot of people would need prices to come down 20, 30%. Especially with the way mortgage rates are right now
0: to get into the market. Which then would have another economic impact that would just, you know, would be like crazy. We're kind of stuck. It feels like that, doesn't it?
1: It does feel like that right now, and I know it is so hard for people. I, I'm one of those people who I check out if there's a house that goes for sale in my neighborhood. Like I'm immediately checking it. I want to see what the deal is. And in my neighborhood right now, it is it's not easy to find even anything for sale. But what about you?
0: Yeah, oh, absolutely. There's I look all the time. Anytime something goes up, but that it's like one maybe every month, one house in the neighborhood, kind of every month, and then it gets snapped up right away. And you know, you look at these other cities like New York and London that we were talking about. And, uh, you know, nobody there, it's just, it's just inheritance. That's the only way to get a home. You live in the home that you grew up in and you're with your parents and then you pass it down to your kids. And that's
1: what's going to happen again. Well, I'm glad you could um, have a little lesson on that, Scott, although it wasn't probably a great lesson.
0: (laughs) Well, I'd I'd rather know the truth than be, you know, have the wool pulled over my eyes. And of course, it's an interesting topic and it affects so much of what we do here in the city. So always interesting stuff.
1: It is very true. Thank you for that, Scott. That is Scott Johnson, our contributor, learning about the housing crisis. It does feel stuck out there. And I am curious about what you're seeing happening in your neighborhood. There is nothing for sale where I live. But what about you? Simi at CKNW.com. You can call or text our buzzline line
3: 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Big number, six and a half billion dollars. That, according to the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade, is the amount of money that BC businesses will face in an additional monetary burden, they think from 2022 or so to 2024. They're saying that's going to hurt economic performance and growth. They believe it could lead to a slowdown in economic growth, even a shallow recession, perhaps, in our province. And they're saying it's a, there are a number of different kind of government-related factors here, uh, eliminating the medical services plan premium, shifting that burden onto business owners, uh, new pa- mandatory paid sick leave, increases in corporate income taxes. So there's obviously a lot here having to do with you know government decisions. So we thought, let's get the government's take on this. So joining us now to talk about this, is Katrina Conroy, BC's Minister of Finance. Thank you so much for joining us. Good to be here, Simi. Thank you. What did you think about this report from the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade?
7: Well, I mean, we understand, and we, we've been talking to businesses, and, and I have met with the, the Vancouver Board of Trade, and so we understand that the issues that are going on, we understand some of the biggest ones are inflation, which is causing problems, it's not just in BC and, and across Canada, but it's, it's a global issue right now, and, and actually the report that they put out showed that uh, 60% of, of, their, of the obstacles was the increase in inflation, So, but I, you know, I, I, we empathize with what's happening with, uh, you know, especially the hospitality sector, it, it's been tough. And, and we've we've done a lot of things to help them because we recognize that it it is it is tough right now.
1: Is there more the government can do?
7: Well, there's always more. I, I, you know, I, I want to look at what we have done to help them so far. I mean, when you look at during COVID, because part of all of this is COVID-related too. I mean, people are still struggling to, to get out of what, people, what happened to people during COVID, especially the hospitality industry, I would think, and the small businesses. I, like, I hear that a lot. And, and so we, we put a lot of supports into, into small businesses. And, and, in fact, as a government, we gave some of the most supports across Canada. And, and what we gave were grants. Um, I know one of the issues for businesses right now, I'm hearing it quite a bit, is the fact that uh, the federal government gave loans and now they're calling back those loans. You know, they're in the process of of having to get ready to pay those loans back, which is causing issues. And I know uh, both, uh, uh, I know we're, our government and Minister Bailey have been uh, in the process of talking to the federal government about that. You know, can they delay it? And I know that the industry is as well, can delay the payback of those loans. Because you want to make sure people are up and running before, you know, you have to pay those loans back. And, and as I said, as a government, we gave grants, um, considerable grants during COVID to, to support people.
1: Right. So that's all, you know, during the pandemic and everything. But when you do put it that way, is is there more that the government will do?
7: Yeah, and, and one of the other biggest issues we're hearing is, is with small businesses is labor. Um, and everywhere, like I've spoken to many Chamber of Commerce since the budget across the province, and as I said, the Board of Trade and, and the Premier has as well, as well as Minister Bailey. And what we're hearing is the biggest issue for for um, businesses is uh, labor, is getting those workers. And, and to that end, we've introduced Future Ready through their post-secondary uh, ministry. And it's, it's one of the, uh, you know, it's a huge program to, to help businesses. Businesses and to actually give direct grants to businesses to get those employees they need trained. So there's thousands of new training seats. We're providing grants, again, of, of over $3,500 to small businesses for short-term training so they can train people. And then we're adding more seats to, to colleges and universities across the province. We're also um, fast-tracking um, people with foreign credentials so that they can work in our province. Because I mean, I'm sure you here at Simi, I certainly do, you know, the number of people that, that are attracted to come to BC, want to move here, and they have to go through a process to get their credentials recognized. And, and of course, we have to do the due diligence to make sure that uh, their credentials are very equitable to ours, but there are so many that are and, and that should be and could be working. So we're we're doing that as well. And I think actually one of the bigger, like there's two other big things, me. Um One is housing. You know, even I'm hearing from people in the interior; they want to bring people into work in their businesses and can't find housing. It's not just uh, low-cost housing; it's affordable housing. You know, middle-income housing. We need to, you know, do more. And Minister Kalon is working so hard to, you know, to, to introduce the many different uh, things that we're doing to try to ensure that we're working in collaboration and partnership with municipalities, with developers, to make sure we're getting that that housing for people. And of course, I think the other one is a childcare. Uh, Seventy. of the people that came into the workforce last year were women. And that was directly attributed to our childcare programs and the fact that, you know, we're putting $900 back into people's pockets <laughs> instead of going yeah. to, and, and that, that's going directly to small businesses.
1: Right. It's know? about also the confidence, right, though, that those businesses feel about their economic conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Canadian Survey of Business Conditions has suggested that 34% of businesses in Metro Vancouver expect a decline in profitability because of economic conditions. Does that number worry you?
7: it worries me, and, 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 every, and we've been talking about that. I mean, there will, we feel there will be a slight decline. I mean, it's because of inflation. It's a global issue. Um, and we're looking at what can we do to ensure we're supporting people, to, to get people through these tough times. I mean, we, we, we still are recognized as one of the better economies in the country. We just got a, our AAA credit rating uh, recommitted. Re- uh, and, you know, so we're looking at that, and how can we ensure that we're helping people? Okay, so
1: looking ahead, then over the next year, which it sounds like businesses are a little apprehensive about the next year, what what can they expect from the government?
7: Well, we're looking at ways. I know Minister Bailey has been, she's, has been out talking to. And and we'll continue to get out and talk to businesses about, you know, what what can we do to ensure that we are are supporting small businesses, helping them. And we've already done a number of of grants and and supports, but but we will continue to look at what we can do. And we're having those discussions at Cabinet.
1: Okay. So uh, do you think B.C. will fare all right over the next year, like according to the numbers that you have there? Are you worried at all, though, about a possible recession in this province?
7: Well, as a finance minister, you're always a wee bit concerned, but I, I know that we, we do have a strong economy. We have, you know, I think we've proven what we when you invest in people, it is good for the economy. As I said, we have one of the strongest economies in Canada, and and we've we fared well coming out of the, out of COVID, and we continue to, you know, we, we continue to hear from investors across the world who are interested in investing in BC, and I, I think that, you know, it will things. I, I'm I'm not Pollyannish. I, things will be a little. Little tighter as, as we move forward because of the global recession and everything that's happening internationally and uh, but uh, I you know we believe that being prudent fiscally responsible that we will be able to to move forward in a good way.
1: okay so what is your message then to businesses who may feel like this is a year of struggle for them?
7: Well, I'm, 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 I empathize with them. I know that, that with the global inflation, high, higher interest rates, and, and, and the fact things like food costs, the cost of doing business is, is uh, difficult right now. But uh, we're there to support them, and we're going to continue to work together to make sure that we get through this time.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Simi. Much appreciated. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's Katrina Conroy, BC's Minister of Finance, responding to the report from the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. Uh, they're concerned about businesses in BC. They say those businesses will face an additional burden of six and a half billion dollars from 2022 to 2024. So over this two year period that we're kind of right in the middle of right now. And they believe it's going to hurt economic performance and growth. And they called it kind of death by a thousand cuts. Things like, you know, eliminating the medical services plan premium, kind of shifting that to employers, uh, that new health care payroll tax, implementing mandatory paid sick leave, increasing corporate income taxes, higher carbon taxes. Uh, there's a lot. And, and they're saying it's a hard time of adjustment for a lot of businesses. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen, who doesn't love a good science fair, right? Do you remember that back in elementary school when you had to do the science fair every year? Those projects that I know I worked on are nothing compared to the projects that I see out there that kids are working on today. In fact, recently was the Canada-wide science fair. It showcased the very remarkable achievements of more than 200 young scientists right across the country. I was taking a look at some of the projects, and I tell you, light years different from what we used to do a couple of decades ago. It is so impressive. And in fact, one of the winners who won a bronze medal is from right here in BC, somebody that we spoke to recently on the show as well. So joining us now is Madeline Gwinnett, who's the executive director of the Science Fair Foundation. Madeline, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having us. And we also have Jasmine Chow, grade seven student and bronze medal winner. Jasmine, thanks for being back with us. Thank you for having me. And congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Now, tell us again about your project, Jasmine. What were you working on?
8: What well, my project was about <clears throat> was it was testing if a chip bag emergency blanket can retain heat the same as two store-bought emergency blankets. What I found was that the emergency blanket actually outperformed the two store-bought emergency blankets.
1: And I'm still amazed by that when you describe it to me again. Your project was phenomenal. So you're feeling pretty good about it, Jasmine?
8: I'm feeling great.
1: You should, because that's phenomenal. So are you already thinking about next
4: year?
8: I haven't narrowed down what project I'm going to do, but the Canada-wide science fair has opened me to all these different types of sciences, and I might do a science in a different type of category, like natural resources or agriculture.
1: Well, I feel like the world is in good hands, Jasmine, if you are out there working on stuff like that. Madeline, is Jasmine just representative of so many kids who come to the uh, science fair?
5: Yeah, it's really incredible. I, uh, it's my favorite time of year is science fair season. You get to go around and see these incredible ideas, really creative, exactly like Jasmine's. And really, when they get to go to Canada Wide Science Fair, they, it, it opens up their eyes to the world of what's out there. And, and it really creates a lot more, more ideas and curiosity in the field.
1: I love the fact that there is a science fair season first of all, yeah um, absolutely. <laughs> but Madeline, as you're walking around and this is I feel like this is what would happen to me looking at these projects or however you look at the projects these days, are you blown away by it?
5: Yeah, it's humbling, but it's really incredible. Um, yeah, hearing the students talk about their projects sort of they can be we often see kindergartners or grade fours. It's usually grade 7 or 12 who go to the Canada-wide. But even then, it's so incredible seeing how passionate they are and well-spoken about their projects. Okay. I was definitely not that well-spoken when I was 12 years old.
1: <laughs> That's what I was thinking about, me too. So yeah. what, what is the criteria here to make it to that level?
5: <laughs> yeah. So uh, most students will participate in the classroom or community fair, and then they'll progress to regionals. So there are over 100 regional science fairs throughout Canada, 13 across BC and the Yukon. Um, About 25,000 students participate in the regionals. And then uh, fewer than 500 go to the nationals. So it's really the volunteer judges circulate. All of the students are presenting in this big, stressful um, exhibit hall. And then very few students, maybe the top two or three from most fairs, go to Canada-wide.
1: Amazing. So Jasmine, did you find this stressful when you did it?
8: I found it actually kind of stressful when I went to the regionals. I was just there to see all the different projects. So when my name was called up to go to Nationals, I found that very surprising. I was super excited.
1: Uh, no kidding. Yeah. So it's probably better because then you didn't feel as much, much stress about it, right? Yes. Okay. So when you got to Nationals, how did you feel?
8: I was pretty stressed out. I was so excited to go, but I was still stressed out a lot. <laughs> I'll bet.
1: Did you see other projects there, Jasmine, that you really liked?
8: I saw. Tons of different types of projects that I really enjoyed reading about. And I found that that all the science fair projects were very intriguing to me.
1: I'll bet. Okay, so can you think of a couple that you thought, you? hey, I learned something looking at this one.
8: Well, I found like I saw one that was about how white noise could be used for ADHD. I found that really cool because he tested like 500 people. And I found, like, whoa, that must have taken a long time to test. Uh,
1: Yeah, for a science fair project, testing 500 people, that's amazing. Jasmine, does this make you want to do more in science, like maybe become a scientist of some kind?
8: I found that, yeah, this makes me want to pursue in science for my career. I see that because I'm only 12, I am going to go test out, like, a bunch of different types of sciences that I'm passionate about and see which one I could like the best and do the best.
1: Yeah, I feel like I'm going to be interviewing you for years to come, Jasmine. Madeline, do you have that same experience too? You see other projects and you think, boy, how did they come up with this?
5: Oh, yeah, it's been really incredible. And the creativity and how unique most of the ideas are, it blows me away every year. And okay. um, well, this chip like blanket is it's just what? so unique. Right?
1: I thought that too. But when you hear like what Jasmine just mentioned, somebody who tested like five hundred people, that seems to me a lot. So what what are the rules around that? Like how much is is there like when you talk about testing a project, are there rules about
8: that?
5: So the rule of thumb is really you need at least three samples. So that would be sort of a basic science fair. When you get into elite projects, that I would say that is, um, you're really getting into really advanced science where you do need huge sample sizes. So 500 would be a great study in itself. Um, But to, to get into science fair, we're really just trying to encourage people, get them into the atmosphere, because you can hear it in Jasmine's voice. It's really exciting, and it gets sort of gets the juices flowing, gets everybody excited and curious about STEM.
1: It certainly does. So is that part of the push here is to, you don't want kids to be so overwhelmed by the idea of science fair? You want them to have fun.
5: Absolutely. We're trying to make it fun. And the regionals, we usually have tours of labs at universities and science shows. And and it's really about getting people excited and curious. Um, It's also a very nice nice thing when people get to advance to nationals, but it's definitely not the goal for everyone. We're really trying to get people excited and thinking and curious about STEM.
1: Oh, well, you certainly did that for us. Uh, Thank you, Madeline, for being with us today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. Anytime. And Jasmine, thank you. And listen, good luck. Thank you for having me. Anytime. And I mean that anytime. That's Jasmine Chow. Jasmine is a grade seven student, 12 years old, Canada-wide Science Fair winner. She got a bronze medal. And Madeline Gwinnett is the executive director of the Science Fair Foundation. Jasmine's um, project, by the way, she was comparing whether those foil chip bags, like potato chip bags, was the same like equivalency in terms of heat retention and protecting you as buying a thermal blanket from, you know, Mountain Equipment Co-op or wherever. And guess what she found out? Yeah, it is. Amazing project, right? Just amazing project what kids are thinking about. And then I think back to mine in grade four, and it was about electricity. I, I mean, I wasn't a big science thinker back then. So you know what? These kids today, light years ahead of the kind of stuff that we were doing back then. It is amazing and so impressive.